WDETM. Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. In a lot of ways, the United States has failed to create and implement any kind of cohesive national strategy to try to suppress the coronavirus. And because of this, some people have started to float ideas about other approaches that might create a feeling of safety or coordination in this time of uncertainty. One phrase that keeps popping up over and over is, quote, herd immunity. If I could get a dollar for the number of times that I hear someone say, well, we just need to lean into the idea of herd immunity. We need to get some herd immunity going for coronavirus. I would be quite a wealthy man. But what does that phrase actually mean? And what would that look like to employ the idea of herd immunity to fight coronavirus? Also, is it a good idea or even safe to be talking about? That is what we want to spend the rest of the hour talking about here on Detroit Today. And here to tell us more about this theory and how it pertains to this moment is Dr. Emily Martin. She is an associate professor of epidemiology at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Dr. Martin, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start here. I, I hear people say herd immunity a lot, and often I look at them and think, this person doesn't have any idea what that actually means. And the truth is, if I were asked to explain herd immunity, I would probably struggle with that explanation. So let's have you explain to our listeners what that term actually means. Sure. So, well, usually when I teach this concept in class, I wear a cow costume because it's all about the herd. It's all about, <laughs> we're talking about the group of people, right? So the herd immunity is basically the number of people in a population that can't be infected, either because they've already had the disease or they've been vaccinated. When that number gets high enough, the disease can't spread through the population anymore because it doesn't have enough people to infect. So the chain of transmission keeps getting interrupted and broken by people that can't be infected. And so you need that high watermark to be basically to be high enough so that enough people are immune to stop the infection from hopping from kind of pocket to pocket to pocket between communities. And so some people, I think, believe that means we just need to get more people to get coronavirus and then build up the antibody to it so that there it is not possible to, to hop as easily from, from one person to the next. Is that the right way to think of it? Well, so that's, you know, it's, it's technically true on the short term that if everybody got infected, that it wouldn't, you wouldn't have a lot of transmission in the community. And, you know, we'll see that, for instance, you know, coronavirus has such uneven patterns. You might see a, um, a, a, a a household or a group of people where everybody gets infected, right? So you're not going to see further spread in that group. The problem is, you know, even with all of the disease and all of the mortality that we've had to date in the United States, our best estimates, even in the hardest hit areas, is that we're really only at a herd immunity level of maybe 10%. Hmm. So we have a long ways to go, and that's a lot of mortality. And it's particularly striking when we think about Nope, I think we have lost Dr. Martin's line there. We're going to get her back on the line. We're going to get her back uh, with us on the show in a second. But while we're waiting, why don't you guys give us a call if you want to join this conversation and tell us what questions you have 
about this concept of herd immunity. What's your understanding of what that means? What are you doing to feel safe during the pandemic these days? And do you think that herd immunity is the way that we will beat this virus? Is that one of the things that we ought to be employing against coronavirus. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter, put comments there. We'll try to work you into the conversation. We do have Dr. Martin back with us on the line. Dr. Martin, go ahead. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if we, um, we try to achieve herd immunity through infection. You know, the concern is that, you know, the impact of the mortality and the illness is going to be disproportionately carried by um, those people that are in fact affected most by the virus. And because we've seen such striking health disparities, it really worries me as, as being kind of a nationwide strategy, especially when we've got what we consider, we think about 90% of people in the country are still susceptible to infection. Mm. And so it's it's really then a risk assessment. In other words, because this virus has been so lethal and so dangerous, the idea of moving from, let's say it is 10% to 90% would, would put far too many lives in jeopardy. Exactly. And the other consideration is we actually don't know what the long-term impacts of the virus are. It's only been around for a couple of months. And so, you know, more and more data is coming out where people are reporting weeks and even months after their infection that they still aren't able to go back to work or still having difficulties with lung capacity. You know, some early reports about cardiac health um, impacts on that. And so, you know, it's sort of playing with fire with a virus that we don't fully understand. Mm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to AJ in Detroit. AJ, welcome to the show. AJ? I'm concerned because of the devastation that this virus causes to one's body. It really wrecks someone when they survive it, even if they have a mild case. Mm. Uh, AJ, I, I I think that's a really great point, and it's something that I don't think we've spent a lot of time really thinking about. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of research still to be done about what the long-term effects of COVID-19 are on, on people's bodies. But Dr. Martin, talk about how that plays into the concept of, of herd immunity and whether it's a practical solution to all of this, this, this support this uh, this possibility that, that even if you survive COVID-19, you're doing damage to your health and to your body for a really long time. Right. I mean, we are seeing evidence of long-term effects for um, lung damage, long um, potential for long-term effects for cardiac, um, cardiac changes. Um, we're seeing people report fatigue and symptoms for a really long time. But the other, you know, the other thing that strikes me about this is this just isn't limited to people who have other complicating conditions or maybe, you know, might be older or might have other health situations going on. We're seeing these kinds of effects in younger people, too. We do see younger adults get hospitalized and can be hospitalized. You know, in my own research, we're seeing people, the younger adults get hospitalized for a week or more. And so, and com- completely healthy adults be hospitalized for a long time. And so we don't want to um, uh, sort of um, over-attribute the fact that it, it's perceived as mild hmm. in, in um, younger adults as being um, being a balancing factor that makes it okay to just uh, let the infection spread unchecked. Hmm. Uh, thanks very much, AJ, for the call. 
Let's go to Martha in Lake Orion. Martha, what's on your mind? Hello. Hi. Um, in looking at the numbers, Sweden is the country that did uh, the herd immunity. That's what they hoped for. That's what they went for. Uh, it looks like they have gotten their numbers way down, but they had many, many deaths in the process. Are they looking at what kind of herd immunity they have figured out from looking at what Sweden did? Hmm. Uh, Martha, I have also heard lots of people talking about Sweden as an example. Uh, Dr. Martin, is is that a good example? Is what happened in Sweden what we maybe should have been trying here? Well, so what I like to um, look at for a comparison to Sweden are places in the United States where we had very early, very difficult to control transmission. So, for instance, New York City and Detroit. And our best estimates from these places, um, where you have a ton of spread before we, of the areas that had a lot of spread before it got under control, with all of, with all of the impacts that these areas had, um, they look to be about seven to ten percent of people in these areas have herd immunity. Um, now, you can find individual workplaces or individual families where everybody's infected, but across the whole city, there's a lot, you know, if you think about a forest fire, I'd say there's a lot of dry wood still there that the embers could catch to. And so these numbers just don't seem to be pushing high enough um, to make that a viable strategy. I've also heard, interestingly, with the Sweden cases, even though they didn't have an official lockdown, once the once all the cases started growing, uh, people started doing it on their own. You know, so you may see a lot of the same social distancing patterns now in Sweden that you see elsewhere, but it happened more organically. Hmm. So one of the other things that I, I think a lot of people are making assumptions about that may not be justified is the the eventual availability of a vaccine. There seems to be a consensus that it's a question of when and not if we develop a vaccine. But if you think of other diseases, uh, there are so many of them for for which there are not vaccines. And the diseases that are most like COVID-19, the common cold, the flu, are things that we haven't developed vaccines for. So I wonder if you can talk about whether we're getting ahead of ourselves or expecting too much out of all of the effort that's that's going into that. Well, you know, I think one of the reasons why yeah, I'm feeling pretty optimistic about vaccines. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons about that is I've never seen a disease for which there are so many tries going on at the same time. I mean, there are so many products and strategies and technologies being employed all at once that um, it, it really increases the chance that one of these is going to work and that we're going to have options and we can pick the best option. Um, you know, one of the reasons we don't have vaccines for the common coronaviruses, but we have, for instance, vaccines for the flu, is because there hasn't really been a concerted national or international level investment in getting there hmm. to the degree that we've had now. It really hasn't been a major focus. Um, so I, I'm feeling pretty optimistic that we'll have something. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to see it go through the full suite of safety and efficacy trials first. So that's going to take some time. But I do think we're going to get there. Hmm. Okay. Dr. Emily Martin, Associate Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow for a discussion about billionaires. Why does America produce so many billionaires? And do we need to change that? This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news. 
music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.